Hello and welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Ella Sagar. The new year is always a time where we can examine our working practices. We've all just had a bit of time off, coming back from the holidays and we can get back up to speed and hopefully look at things with fresh eyes. With that in mind, I'm very happy to welcome back to the show our very own columnist, Nikki Kemp, the editorial director of Creative Brief, who in her most recent column wrote about how our collective hustle culture is having a negative effect on us all, but especially caretakers. Nikki, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. And also joining me is my colleague, Jack Benjamin, who's dialing in from home. Are you there, Jack? (laughs) Yes, I'm still sadly at home and suffering from a very longer bout of COVID than I thought uh, was even possible in this day and age. But I hope you can hear me loud and clear. Yes, all good here. So we're going to dive into a lot of different topics today. And apart from discussing the state of work, we're going to be talking about the reported layoffs at Channel 4, the start of cookie deprecation. I feel like that's been uh, long awaited and some startling statistics about the state of digital news and social media ad spend. And finally, how the box office revenue has fared in 2023. Let's start off with your column, Nikki. Um, This week, you were talking about how media professionals should embrace saying uh, the art of saying no, uh, which is actually, I think, harder than most people think it is. So difficult. And I, full disclosure, it's much easier for me to write that than actually have the receipts of doing that. So that's what I'll be trying to do in 2024. But I think it's so interesting. And I've had such a range of responses and to that column, which has been really, really interesting, because I do think that the move fast and break things uh, style of working and leadership that I grew up with in the workplace is really having an impact now. Um, There was a really interesting report last year, which really looked at millennial leaders and how they were squashed from both sides in terms of the expectations of Gen Z workers, but also the difficulties in explaining to senior leadership the shift that's happened when it comes to what employees expect from the workplace. And I think particularly going into 2024, because I think it's important to be honest, this is quite a challenging year already, and we're only in January (laughs) We've got elections on the cards. We've got, we know, I know we're going to talk about job losses. I think it's really important not to sugarcoat this year with the tendency that we sometimes have in the media industry to be super positive and and talk about lots of growth, especially in the agency space. And I think the, the best advice I have for that and why I really want to focus on saying no is actually as individuals, we can take more control of the decisions that we make. We can really look at what we're dedicating our time to and if that aligns with what it is we're trying to achieve. Because I think meeting culture can be very, very heavy Mm. and really actually saying no to some of those things that you're perhaps not contributing that much to anyway in order to say yes to the things that really matter is super important. Mm. And you were talking about hustle culture being as toxic as diet culture has been for women and and men in some cases as well. But I think that that's quite an interesting comparison. Absolutely. And I think so much of hustle culture is completely unrealistic and unachievable for people with caring responsibilities. Um, Full disclosure, I read a lot of motivational books, um, but so many of those books and podcasts, it's wake up at 5am, the 5am club. Mm, the secrets um, of the CEO. Exactly. Yeah. The secret of the CEO who who's outsourced every single aspect of his life apart from showing up at work. 
And I think that's so toxic because what we're essentially asking people to do is pretend that the playing field is level and hold themselves to the standards of people who have really, really no caring responsibilities. And particularly now, um, I spoke to quite a few women who've made quite tough decisions over the Christmas break uh, to leave the industry because of some of the decisions that have been made around return to the office particularly agencies that have mandated specific days that people come into the office and then there is a six-month waiting list for childcare on that day. And I feel like at its worst, hustle culture disconnects leaders from the reality of their employees' lives. And I think there's lots of metrics where we can look at that and see that, whether it's the disconnect between executive pay and starting salaries, which is huge, Um, And whether it's the understanding of what the impact of their policies are. And I think it's really important to challenge some of those aspects of hustle culture, because it's not just that you can't achieve that. It's that you can't actually maintain the position that you already have because flexible working has been removed. Mm -hmm. And the goalposts have been moved. 100%. I was reading that the... um for the top CEOs in the UK, they earned more in the first four days of the of the year than the rest of the workforce uh, will earn um, for the rest of the year, and which is sh- shocking. But it is actually, when you think about it, and may, that's not specific to advertising; that's across yeah. the board. Um, but yeah, I just... think that is such a great. It's not a great statistic. That's so wrong. Mm. It's such a great point to make because we talk a lot about culture in agencies um, and media owners. And actually your pay is the foundation of your culture. Um, It's so interesting as well, isn't it? Because you talk to people now and they are not able to attend parties because they're living further away. The the playing field has changed so much. And I think it's really important to actually recognize the foundations of culture are the pay and the policies. They're not the PowerPoint presentation or keynote deck saying these are our brand values. It's it's the actions. Mm, or the coffee yeah. in the kitchen and that sort of thing, or the, the, yeah. the, the drinks fridge. Um, I think also to, is this kind of that we have made progress on that work-life balance and you were talking about Gen Z and how they uh, yeah. in a way seem to have that, like um, the idea of what they want to say yes and no to quite clearly. But then at the same time, all of these kind of a backslide effectively in terms of uh, flexible working. And so there's a few things happening at the same time. Definitely. And I think in a year um, where people are so stretched and we're going to come on to some economic difficulties, what companies can't afford to waste time on is policies that cause unnecessary conflict. And I think some of this conflict is in entirely unnecessary because it's based on the feelings of a few male CEOs rather than the facts of how actually flexible working can drive productivity. It can help close the gender pay gap and it can help retain talent. Three things that we definitely need to do in the media industry. Mm. I, I would I would just add to, to all this, which I, I very much agree with that, you know, I think um, drawing those sort of work-life balance and boundaries is really important, but it really does start at the top. It's not just the CEO earning more than than the rest of the workforce necessarily. It's also the fact that a lot of young people, especially if they're if they're worth their weight, are you know going to be wanting to hustle 
to give more, to advance their career or, or learn more. And I think it's incumbent upon people in leadership and management to set a standard of work-life balance both for themselves and also for the younger staff members who are are not yet needing to schedule their days around, let's say, caretaking responsibilities, uh, that this is what is normal at our office or, or at our company. Um, you know, and I, I know it's a very difficult for, for leaders to sometimes turn themselves off in that way, but I think it's it's really necessary to, to set slightly different standards. Hmm. And, and yeah, this all ties in with talent, working life. And, and, you know, one of the big stories of the week was Channel 4 announcing it was planning to uh, lay off um, staff. And that was the biggest um, proportion since the 2008 recession, which is obviously quite a negative, kind of sad story. And we've talked a lot about the TV market following the future of TV advertising global, which happened in December. And, uh, and it's all kind of wrapped up in that. But I was curious when you guys read the news, Jack, maybe I'll start with you. What was, what was, what was your initial reaction to that? Well, well, my initial reaction was humility because I think just on the podcast last week, I was predicting fewer layoffs in 2024 as interest rates start to either stop raising or, or even decline at some point. Um, and so that hasn't obviously happened here. Uh, you know, this it's in response to a you know difficult TV ad market. We've been warned um, even by Channel 4's CEO, uh, who, who talked of market shock territory being reached um, for, for the TV ad market more generally. Um, and, and we sort of talked uh, among ourselves back and forth this week about how much that is necessarily going to be contained to Channel 4, which is you know more than its competitors reliant on linear advertising, as opposed to other broadcasters. Um, I, don't, I don't know if we've seen uh, the last of, of the negative effects of the market. Um, but analysts I've talked to have at least said that uh, they, they still expect the TV ad market to recover later this year. So hopefully we're coming toward the end of, of the need to cut back on budgets. But uh, it's definitely uh, not never great news. Um, but at least Channel 4, uh, from talking to their spokesperson, is using it as, as an opportunity to uh, diversify its revenues to future-proof the business by getting more involved in digital as opposed to just linear uh, content and advertising. So um, I'm, I'm I'm basically just trying to look for some silver linings. It's it's overall obviously not very good news. Mm -hmm. Nikki, it's such tough news, isn't it? Because Channel Four is just such a trailblazing, brilliantly creative brand, and we've really seen them take a leadership position. Um, and a leadership position within the media and advertising industry as well. I'm thinking of stuff like the Channel 4 Diversity and Advertising Awards, um, which I think is wonderful. I think there's so many reasons to give Channel 4 credit. My concern with these cutbacks is when you're cutting back in commissioning and content, you're really cutting back in growth. You really are. And I think the the impact of these decisions, you know, not just on an individual level of, of, of really passionate people, independent commissioners losing commissions at the last minute and the, the challenges that come with that. I'm thinking about all the beautiful content that is not going to be made. And I think it is an inflection point for the industry as well, because we talk a lot about investing in quality content. But is that talk matched with investment? I think actually we need to spend our money in trusted media brands or those trusted media brands will continue to shrink. 
I do think there are some uncomfortable questions for Channel 4, particularly when it comes to executive pay um, in this particular environment. I think they've got some tough questions to answer, but I do think there's also broader industry questions of, are we actually investing enough in long-term brand building? Because this could really be catastrophic if it continues Mm-hmm. Yeah, you kind of hope that it is not the start of multiple. Uh, you Obviously, you would want this to be like a, we're going to do this now so we don't have to do more later uh, kind of approach, which is what uh, Spotify in December was saying when they announced their their job cuts as well. And so there, there are lots of different things happening. And, and I know uh, today that um, Jack, you were mentioning that Twitch was also announced job cuts mm-hmm. as well. So well, maybe we can talk about that later when we get onto Amazon. But I think you, you guys make really good points. And, and our editor, Omar Oaks, was just t- writing in his column this week that 2024 should be the li- the year of linear. It should be that going back to quality media, trusted media, that kind of talent and uh, creativity, expertise should all be really valued this year, um, mm. which I think is are all good things to Definitely. look for. <laughs> <in the media. laughs> Definitely. I, I, yeah, I agree from a normative perspective that that is what, uh, it should happen, uh, and and what I would hope to happen. It's the same sort of argument to say yes, we should be investing more uh, ad spend in trusted media environments, and I think everyone here agrees with that. Um, the the question is whether advertisers will necessarily want to do it because they can just look at numbers on a spreadsheet and say, oh well, fewer people are necessarily watching linear TV, so maybe let's move our spend somewhere else, and and they're not they don't necessarily think or necessarily care about the broader societal implications of lack of funds going toward uh, uh, very trusted mediums in an era that is marked by lack of trust. Um, so it's a it's a difficult calculation that I'm sure advertisers are going to have to be making. Mm. And on the TV front, uh, there is a major new entrant coming to the TV ad market, um, Amazon Prime Video. Uh, I've written about it this week, but uh, uh, and they're going to be bringing in an ad tier um, where subscribers or prime users, I think we should call them, um, will have to pay extra to avoid that, um, having ads on their prime video content. But do either of you first off have prime? Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I do am. you actually watch prime video? Cause I think there's two different things there. Cause you can have a prime account, but you're not necessarily a prime video watcher. So that'd be quite mm. interesting to see what, if you guys are, are watchers, are prime users. Both. Both. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I do not actually have a Prime account. I used to have one when I was a student and I got a nice little student discount, um, but not anymore. And part of that is because I tend, I just don't really find the user experience that great. And I don't necessarily love their uh, uh, original content that they're producing. I tried uh, last year watching the Lord of the Rings series. And the Rings like, of Power. Uh, that, the Rings the of Power. The most expensive yeah, that, TV series ever made. <laughs> that's that's the that one, one. <laughs> and uh, i didn't really enjoy it so um yeah at the moment i don't have amazon prime but but ella you you did write this this uh, story for us this week i mean mm-hmm. can you tell us what we need to know about what's going on with this new ads tier yeah so it's a different strategy to the likes of netflix and disney plus that have also launched ad tiers where if you are a prime user you are automatically defaulted to having ads you're not being given oh here's a cheaper option if you'd like to effectively downgrade and have ads which is what netflix have done um and so they're automatically increasing their scale to everybody who watches that platform 
even if you do then pay, so let's say I think it's about 899 for a Prime account in the UK, it's 299 additional a month if you do not want ads on Prime Video. And so that's quite a hefty little add-on every single yeah. month. Um, and that's still, if you're watching live sport, they carry a lot of Premier League matches, for instance. It doesn't apply to that. So there are a few different elements to it where uh, it will be interesting to see. There has been a bit of backlash when the email came through saying, ads will be coming on the 5th of February. You do not need to do anything unless you opt out. And lots of people were saying, well, I never asked for ads. And yeah. so, and I'm still paying quite a lot for and for something that I didn't ask for. Uh, so there's just a few different elements which you could call like strategy or manage managing expectations of cons consumers and we'll see how that works. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because I think to your point, Ella, that they've come out with this different model. It feels like they're marketing to themselves and their own board because from a consumer perspective, you would want and you would have less backlash for a cheaper or free version with ads than you would taking this move of pay more or you get ads. Mm -hmm. So this is entirely driven by the bottom line. I thought the communication around it was very interesting as well. Um, it was very apologetic, you know, limited advertising, mm -hmm. saying that they were going to have less advertising than their competitors. And you just think, actually, you're undermining the brilliance of an ad-funded model in the way that you're couching this and tiptoeing around it, I think it's really fascinating. I think there's a real disconnect between the size, scale, and sheer financial clout of Prime Video and how they are communicating. They are communicating like a local newspaper. It's fascinating. You see it with their live sports as well. Sometimes they have like essentially a Harris fence with some branding kind of gaffer tape to it that says Prime Video. It, it's a very interesting mishmash of scale and a lack of clarity in communication. Mm. It's a fantastic point, really, because it's, it's something that all the major streaming companies, I, I feel like that's the same position that they've taken, where they reluctantly are introducing advertising and, oh, sorry, but it's not that big of a deal type of thing, as opposed to leaning into the positives of having an ad funded model which is the, the the value exchange of okay you can get this for a lower price than otherwise we would have to be raising this the, the price of amazon prime video by three pounds or four pounds a month whatever it might be and instead you pay less and okay yeah you have to uh watch some ads but look at all this extra content that we can create with this revenue or i mean what's going back to the consumer that can be the message that they push and none of these companies have pushed that type of messaging some of the commentary that i have seen just as a kind of on the other side of things has been that the amazon being quite brave and saying actually the the advertising is going to help the quality of our content so that is why we're not going to offer a cheaper because a cheaper option because if we do we're going to say oh well we know that's sort of saying that advertising is is annoying and that you're and that you won't want to pay for it but the way they explained it is they've said, oh, this will help us invest in future content and things like that. One thing that I've noted is they don't need to launch ads on, on Prime Video. They make enough money. They made 141 billion in sales in the last, in Q3. They they don't really need no. to, to launch an ad tier, which I think was maybe a different position than than say Netflix was, who kind of in, from my perspective of, of 
how I read things was they had a bad earnings call and then suddenly they were announcing they were launching ads and kind of going into that. It's so, it's interesting. Yeah, the the strategy for a long time was that Prime Video was really just going to act as a loss leader for the rest yeah. of the business. I mean, retail sales can cover it. AWS also uh, has been where they're making all their real money. Mm. Um, so it seems like they're shifting the strategy. They want to start actually making more money from Prime Video. Maybe that's because of the cost of things like the Rings of Power. Maybe they've they've spent a little bit too much money than they otherwise should have on producing original content. Um, but it is interesting. And perhaps that's that's also why we're seeing uh, big cuts at Twitch, as you mentioned earlier. Mm. Um, maybe the leadership at Amazon is tired of having too many loss leaders and wants those uh, to be making more revenue going forward. Um, it, it's hard to say for, for certain. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because it's the scale of the company combined with the lack of clarity of communication. I also think that the challenge for these streaming brands is that they have historically made a big deal about the fact that they don't have advertising. Mm. They've used it as a as a lever to promote themselves to consumers. And now they're rolling back from that quite apologetically. And, and, and with Twitch, again, you've got a brilliant brand there, but it's how do you grow that brand after an acquisition without alienating your brilliant talent, which is often what happens when you have these rounds of layoffs, other people will leave as well. It's a very, very delicate balance to acquire a company like that. Obviously, it did have its financial challenges, but that acquisition process is so delicate. So it'll be really interesting to see how Twitch comes out of this. Mm. I mean, I know, Jack, that you've spoken a lot about gaming in the past and and so that was this quite unexpected news because for, for me, I hadn't really uh, seen this one coming. Yeah, well, Twitch has never been uh, profitable. Um, I think Amazon acquired it uh, quite a number of years ago. Um, and in that time, it's it's never turned a profit. But when they acquired the company for uh, you know, quite a, a chunk of change, it, it was because they saw potential there. Uh, frankly, Twitch doesn't actually have any real competition in the gaming streaming uh, uh, market. It's the only company that you, you would really, it's the only platform you would really go and watch streamers. I mean, YouTube has tried to crack into it, but it's not gotten that community settled in really yet. Um, so it's still a very valuable brand, I think, as Nikki rightfully says. Um, they just have never really turned it into a profit-making business. And um, in times of higher interest rates, uh, companies like Amazon look to make them earn better money um, because they, they, there's just not as much money going around that they can borrow. Mm. And I suppose when taking it back to Prime Video, content is more expensive than ever to produce. And so there are a few different parts of that in, uh, that can be factored in. The head of um, AV Investment, Ian Daly, um, he's head of AV Investment at the Seven Stars. He wrote um, in September that uh, advertisers should be excited by the potential scale that could be opened up by Amazon's slightly different approach to launching an ad-funded tier um, but that from a consumer standpoint, the viewers might feel quite agitated by uh, the thought of ads, but the alternatives are equally, if not more, unappealing. So kind of thinking about, well, what what would happen if, if they weren't going to launch an ad tier? Um, and I suppose it all comes back to how much of the uh, CPM is going to be on, on Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, reportedly, they are more reasonable than Netflix at launch, and Netflix obviously had to 
had a guarantee and had to kind of refund advertisers. And so hopefully they will try and uh, avoid that from happening. But do you guys think that Prime Video with ads will be a success or are there going to be a few bumps in the road? I think there's definitely a few bumps in the road because they don't have enough clarity in their communication, their positioning or their brand strategy. Um, So I think they've got fundamental issues there. I think on the flip side of Netflix, they've got an ad funded channel on the platform. So there's going to be a lot of technical problems that they're not going to face. Mm, Because they've got freebie. Exactly. So I feel like in some ways they're going to be ahead. But I really think that the level of apologizing for an advertiser funded model in the midst of a cost of living crisis is not a good marketing strategy. It's very confused and very much feels like the type of marketing strategy that's aimed at their own board. Hmm. Do you think if they'd said, okay, we are going to introduce ads. We know you didn't ask for them, but we might, if you want to opt in for ads, we will knock a pound off the price or something like that. Exactly. I think it should have been a consumer first approach rather than an Amazon bottom line first approach. Mm -hmm. Jack, what's your take? Yeah, I agree. It's not great for consumers, but advertisers do seem really interested. Um, AV people are are excited about this uh, prospect. Um, so I, I would would not be surprised if there's bumps in the road, but I also equally wouldn't be as surprised if it goes a little bit smoother than some of the competitors that launched ad tiers last year. Mm, yeah. And one thing that I was uh, asking people about, one of the other big streamers uh, that has still not got ads is Apple TV Plus. Mm. And uh, I was asking people, do you think that they might feel a bit like, oh, maybe we should get in on the advertising uh, tier? You know, Netflix is there, Disney Plus is there, Amazon now there. They could see it as a brand differentiator, though. Mm. And I think they've got a slightly different acquisition point as well, because I know, obviously, with Amazon Video, um, that's part of your prime package. But obviously, with Apple TV, when you buy an Apple product, you get a year of Apple TV. So they've got this constant um, funnel of new viewers coming in when they get their products. So I think it will be interesting to see. I expect them not to follow suit because that is the Apple school of brand building. And I think that will be really interesting because it really undermines the we need advertising to have quality content on a paid for streaming service. Mm. Yeah, Apple's got a really healthy balance sheet. It's always flush with cash uh, these days. So they can maybe even more than Amazon afford to use it as a loss leader. And as you mentioned, set the brand apart. Just say, we're the only one without any ads. Come to us. Mm. (laughs) Mm. Well, we'll watch that space intently to see what happens and what develops. It's never still, uh, let's say. Um, So we're going to move on to the quick hits for now and kind of short and sweet, maybe like a, what are we saying now, Jack? A minute? It's a minute. Cut me off after a minute. I'm tired (laughs) of hearing my voice. (laughs) Okay, so uh, first first thing that's been uh, happening this week. So this is a uh, a study. Twenty two percent of publishers say they're considering cost cutting measures in response to a loss of traffic from Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram this year. Jack, you wrote the story, so I'm going to put uh, this question to you: Is it the responsibility of social media companies to make room for prioritizing news publishers, given users do go to social media sites for news consumption? Or is it incumbent upon publishers to better innovate to fight audiences outside of the Facebooks and Twitters of this world? What would you mm. say? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's an interesting argument. I mean, when I spoke with Ramin Beheshti on the podcast previously, and he's the he's the new CEO of the News Movement, which is a social first publisher, he basically said that it is incumbent upon publishers to innovate better than they currently are. And I think that's at least partially true. I also think it's totally reasonable for them uh, to go to regulators and say, look, a, a handful of companies have destroyed news publishing's business model and have done so through often some anti-competitive or arguably anti-competitive business practice. I think they have a really strong argument for that. But ultimately, I, I, I do sort of put blame on social media companies for taking policy positions that are anti-journalism and, and in many ways, therefore, especially as an election year, anti-democratic. Um, at the same time, it's a little more nuanced than that. So Meta has drawn publishers ire for deprecating news on Facebook, but they've also created new ways for publishers to share news on WhatsApp through this broadcast channel uh, feature, which is really interesting. So I don't necessarily see all social media as like malignant, but there's uh, a, a market failure clearly going on that needs some form of correcting. Mm. And Nikki, I suppose for for you on as an editorial person and you must interact with social media definitely i think it's really interesting i do think there's a huge culpability issue with social media when it comes to news and quality journalism but i think the fundamentals of journalism are reach reputation and relevance and arguably publishers have been far too reliant on social media platforms for reach so i do think there's fundamental issues for the industry as well to really think about really actually recognizing their role in building their own reach. And I think we can see that on a micro level with Substack and how well Substack has grown. But I do think that over-reliance on social media platforms for reach is also mm. a huge, huge issue for media owners as well. Just on Substack quickly, they've been in the news recently. I might just add another quick hit. That there was a headline that I saw is Substack to remove some Nazi content. Jack, do you know anything about this as a Substack man? <laughs> um, well, I do. I haven't posted to Substack in a little while. But yeah, basically, Substack had a big backlash because they were taking the stance that they were basically going to allow any content to be posted on their platform, including content that is pro-Nazi, basically, which is crazy that I'm having to say that in 2024. Um Although maybe not that crazy anymore. I don't know. I'm, I'm tired. Um, <laughs> but uh, they basically have rolled back some of the policy to say that, okay, now they're actually going to maybe take down certain content that is a bit too out of bounds. Like so other social media companies, they're a little bit different in that they don't algorithmically recommend people read certain content. You do have to search it out for yourself. The issue that I think most people are taking with Substack is that anyone that is paying to read, you know, paywalled substacks that are having hateful content on them, Substack is still taking a share of that profit. They're not demonetizing. Uh, so that's kind of, I think, where people are taking a big issue with the company. Um, we'll see if writers continue to leave and go elsewhere. I know a bunch of bloggers are using um, uh, other things now, like Ghost. It, uh, a lot of people are moving to other, just other blogging platforms or Medium even. Um, and we'll see if that forces Substack to continue to, to change. Mm. I hadn't heard of Ghost or Medium, but I, I just find that such an interesting space because there's they're, they're coming into that uh, area where, where what is allowed, what isn't allowed, where, there, where there is, it, you don't have a regulator to say that yeah. is offensive or that, that sort of thing. Um, so in that it's a very blurred area. I think it's so 
challenging as well because specifically in the UK market, we have a way too overly academic reliance on free speech to normalise hate speech. I think I've, I've, I've heard people leaning on the argument of free speech to defend content that incites violence against others. And I think that is something that comes right from academia all the way through the UK publishing industry. It's really, really toxic and mm. it's great to see it being called out. Mm. Mm. The next quick hit. There isn't really a way to segue easily from that, but um, the UK box office revenue uh, grew 8% in 2023 to exceed a billion pounds for the first time since before the COVID pandemic. Uh, but it's still well behind um, pre-pandemic figures, uh, so which were in excess of 1.3 billion pounds in the years leading up to 2020. Uh, do you think, uh, Nikki, do you think box office revenues will ever kind of surpass that point again? Absolutely. I think we are still seeing the impact of the writer's strike. Uh, I think that's had a real impact on revenues this year. And when you look at the cultural currency and commercial clout of films like Barbie, I think we're going to see a huge, huge increase in box office revenues and also driven by just brilliant theatre experiences as well. I mean, every man, these kind of brands that are really coming into the experience space I think we will see box office revenues mm -hmm. return to pre-pandemic levels. Mm -hmm. Jack, are you as optimistic? No, actually, <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm that optimistic. Uh, I think it's really hard to know. People became used to waiting for movies to release on streaming uh, during and after the pandemic. And so I'm not sure you can put that toothpaste back in the tube. I mean, I love going to the cinema, um, but I have personally severely cut down on how often I do because ticket prices can be a bit steep in London. And, and this is a bigger issue, but I, I think a lot of what's coming out of Hollywood right now is totally crap to, to be <laughs> kind of rude really about think, it. Jack. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, there's just a bit too little originality. There's too much IP driven movie content. Um, Marvel didn't have a good year uh, and for good reason, because the movies they put out weren't very good, but everyone still wants to be Marvel because that's where the money is. Mm. Um, so I think when studios start making more better movies that are more diverse uh, and extending their theatrical releases or delaying their release on streaming a little bit, I think that's when you might see some box office sales rise because Nikki, you're totally right that like Barbie and Oppenheimer proved people will show up to films that are big cultural events. We need more of those big cultural events in film. Netflix doesn't have a monopoly on cultural, cultural tent poles just because they have stranger things and, and squid yeah. game. You know, I can assure you that <laughs> there's lots of creativity to go around. There's just not enough of it being funded right now. Yeah. I'm excited to see what's coming yeah. out uh, later 100%. this year. I'm um, with you that I'm over the multiverse. I want Marvel <laughs> to go back to basics, please. Yeah, I was I was such a Marvel fan. And now when I talk to my my fellow Marvel fans, I'm like, there's just too much. I can't, we've lost that our way. Um, yeah, that is, it, it's, an, again, uh, there might be a course correction yeah. where they, and that's what Bob Iger, I think, hinted at, that they, um, CEO of Disney, that they've done too many sequels yeah. to Marvel. They've kind of reduced the... The kind of cachet of the IP, so they're gonna scale back on that, which was welcome news to me, um, to be honest. Okay. Yeah, me too. Mm. <laughs> uh, next quick hit. So cookies are deprecating finally, albeit slowly. Uh so Jack, I'll come to you first. What is one thing that people should know about their slow, slow deprecation demise? <laughs> whatever you want to call it. It's a very small taste of what's to come. Um but yeah, if companies weren't already thinking about their post-cookie solution, then they're way behind the ball. I think most people have. 
Uh, and we'll see some more post-cookie solutions continue to crop up, be it from agencies or publishers. We've already seen a bunch in the past year or so. Um, in my opinion, beyond the fact that it's more respectful of user privacy, I think it's also a good thing for advertising quality. Um, many people, and I'm one of these people, are kind of turned off when advertising becomes too targeted. Sometimes I received ads that I'm like, clearly they think I'm someone that I'm not, or they know me really well and that's very creepy. Mm -hmm. um, I think advertisers need to get back to focusing on ads that are just great ads for whatever medium it is that they're producing and, and worrying ever so slightly less about making sure that they have all the data that they can use. Sometimes you don't need all of it. Um, so hopefully ad quality actually improves uh, and not just data privacy. But but Ella, I know that you uh, also wrote about this issue in the past week. So mm. I'm curious if you have a quick thought as well. Yeah, I think so it's affecting 1% of users globally, this test, but it's been pushed back and pushed back and so there will be no kind of decisions taken until that uh this test of this one percent which is i still i think is is still about th uh, three million or something it's a crazy number of people but um so there it's it's a kind of a pending space it's it uh what what will end up coming in out of that is kind of unknown still and um, yeah that's the main takeaway it's like and is one percent of users enough to be representative of however many mm -hmm. billion people use Chrome every day who like that's another question uh yeah Nikki it's so fascinating mm. isn't it and I feel it's like a broader inflection point particularly for the media industry because historically media owners and particularly tech platforms have been guilty of treating privacy like it's a luxury as opposed to a right so I think this is part of a fundamental shift that's happening in terms of consumers being much more aware of their own data, their digital footprint. But it's a real opportunity for media agencies to really actually be quite independent in their recommendations that they're giving to brands. I think we've definitely seen the cost of media agencies commoditizing, putting process before people. I think now is the point where brands really need a clear, independent point of view from their media agency that is about far more than gamification of brand performance metrics, which I think we've seen a lot of in mm -hmm. 2023. Mm -hmm. I think is that thing of uh, the data can tell you whatever it, whatever you want, as yeah. long as you squeeze it hard enough. Uh, so I think that maybe this again is a chance to to course correct um, and hopefully more quality, as you say, Jack, will come out of that. Uh, this is the final question. Uh, given it's award season, so we had the Golden Globes, I think we had the Emmys as well. Um, what has been your favourite film and TV show of 2023? Nikki, do you want to go first? So can I cheat and go for Mr. Bates versus the post office, even though that's technically 2024? <laughs> uh, I think it's the most watched show of 2024 so far. <laughs> and on linear TV as well, 9.2 million viewers. Um, best start to the year for ITV for a decade. I just think it's... Just a phenomenal piece of storytelling and just a reminder, like the impact that it's had on culture. It was on the front page of the Evening Standard yesterday. Paula Venels is having her CBE removed. All these things that are happening because of really well-funded, really well-thought-out, incredibly cast storytelling. For me, that is definitely the energy I think we mm -hmm. need to bring into 2024. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was a great way to start 2024. Jack, did you have any any thoughts on uh, uh, the your favorite film and TV for 2020? Yeah, I did. Uh, the best film I saw in cinemas 
this past year was probably Anatomy of a Fall. Um, it's a French film, legal drama, uh, fantastic. Just the acting was amazing. I think that was just one um, best screenplay actually at the Golden Globes, and I wouldn't be surprised if it uh, wins best original screenplay. I should specify uh, at the Academy Awards, although um, it's always a very competitive field for that category. Um, so I thought that film was fantastic. And then for TV, I mean, come on, Succession was <laughs> amazing. Both you it and I are so obsessed with the so Succession. Good. <laughs> so good. yeah, I mean, for anyone who's in who works in media, it's like. It's ama- It's just so much fun to, to see. Um, I can't even imagine what it would be like if I was working at News UK or <laughs> maybe, maybe knew a little bit more about the uh, source material that they that they dug up for that. Um, yeah, no, that that show was fantastic. And the, I wouldn't be I mean, it swept at the Golden Globes. Basically, all the acting categories went went their way. Um, so, so good. I'm so sad it's over. I'm so jealous of people that are listening to this who haven't yet watched it, who get to watch it. I haven't watched it. (laughs) Oh, still, still. It's so well written. Mm. It's just phenomenal. I just, uh, I think the reason that I haven't watched it is that I find the characters quite like scary and uh, like already I haven't watched it. Like none of them are nice people. Uh, That's the point. Which is is the point, I guess. Yeah, um, it's like I mean, it's by the same guy who did Peep Show. You're not not supposed to like those, you know, Mark and Jeremy either. So you just have to go into it with that with that knowledge. Like I'm going to hate these people and let me laugh at them. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And uh, Nikki, you were saying that um, if you had to pick one from 2023, oh, you have a story for us. So fail, absolute fail. If you haven't watched Saltburn yet, do not watch it with your entire family. Um, you know, <laughs> blame to Amazon for bunching that up with the Christmas movies because. You don't want to watch that with your dad. You just don't. <laughs> it's 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 Marmite, I think, Saltburn. I, I still actually don't know what I think about it. I will never look at bathtubs the same way after watching that film. No, there's a grave scene as well. I mean, I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't watched it already, but I do recommend watch it and then imagine watching it with your parents mm. not a good idea not the christmas movie anyone was expected oh, just have this image of the house the kemp household sitting down <laughs> shrinking and, and then being like what are we watching <laughs> <laughs> ella what about you oh i i feel like I, I i don't know if i've been really watching enough enough tv i can't think of anything good could i give like a what was my favorite film can i give my anti-film like of I, I mean, this was Rebel Moon on Netflix. Please do not watch it. It is awful. Um, I can only think of the bad ones right now. I can't think of the good ones. You're, um, you're pitching for the Razzies. Yeah, <laughs> basically, this is a different kind of award. Rebel Moon is uh, Zack Snyder's new movie on Netflix. It's over two hours long and it is supposed to be an original sci-fi um, and there's nothing original about it. It's like a weird mesh of Star Wars, Star Trek and like Firefly and and so much other IP that's just kind of smashed together but it doesn't have it doesn't make any sense and it's too long and it and it and there's so many slow-mos and it just uh I couldn't even rage watch it like it was just <laughs> I was I ended up rage watching it but then I just was like oh anyway pass that one off the list <laughs> so uh, yeah I'm that's like my to mark her mode yeah I, I mean I, I do love Komodo, Komodo Mayo so you know um, that's that's a, maybe a, the next career I don't know um, <laughs> I think we'll have to leave it there as much as I could chat to you both all day uh, thank you for joining me and uh, we'll see you next time thank you thank you thank you for listening to the Media Leader Podcast 
You can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time.